You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, welcome to a new year, which also for this podcast brings on a new season and of course the new slate of guests. And we'll be getting to our guest today in just a couple of minutes. But since it is the new year, if you're listening to this episode in real time, just a couple of questions for you before we get to the guest. The first question is, how is your soul doing? How is your soul doing? If you were to describe to someone the condition of your soul, what words would you use to describe? And what are you doing about it? If your soul is not in good shape, if you're heading into this new year carrying a heavy weight or feeling anxious, what are you doing about it? The, the second question that I always find helpful to ask is a simple question and oftentimes hard to answer. Where are you stuck? Where are you stuck, either in your own personal journey or in your leadership or in your family? In family systems theory, the evidence that we are stuck is when our solution to a problem is either doing more of the same or applying try harder. The way you know you're stuck is if you are simply trying harder with a solution that is already not working or you're applying more of the same. Where are you stuck? The third question before we get to our guests is what did you do last year that you do not want to do this year? What did you do last year that you don't want to do anymore? Maybe it's a secret habit. Maybe it's a leadership approach that is just generating too much anxiety. What's something you did last year that you don't want to do this year? And how are you going to break that pattern? All right. Today's guest, Gabe and Rebecca Lyons. I'll keep it short because uh, they speak for themselves. I think most of us know who Gabe and Rebecca are. If you don't know who they are, this is a couple who have so much to offer on so many levels. Gabe, as well as being an author, is the founder of Q. Q is a very innovative Christian think tank conference. Uh, They do regional conferences. They do national conferences. Uh, Gabe wrote a book in 2007 called Unchristian. Even though that book's over a dozen years old, it's still essential reading for any faith leader. Rebecca uh, had an incredible book just recently come out, The Rhythms of Renewal, Trading Stress and Anxiety for a Life of Peace and Purpose. Uh, Both of them together have a lot to talk about as it relates to Christian culture, culture in general, as it relates to anxiety, anxiety attacks. Gabe and Rebecca are also parents of children with special needs, and they just simply have a lot to offer on life, soul health, healthy rhythms, and also what's going on in our culture today. I interviewed them together, and I began by asking Rebecca just to share with us a bit of her own journey with anxiety and how she came to overcome the panic attacks that gripped her later in life. Well, I, you know, faith was such a huge part of my healing journey from panic disorder that began nine years ago. And after about a year and a half of walking that almost daily, um, God just met me. I was flooded with peace and I knew that it, I was entering a new season. I actually didn't have another panic attack for about seven years. But in that, though, I was still pushed into environments that would, that would create um, the temptation to, to give way to that, whether it was tight spaces in Manhattan or planes, trains, elevators, subways, and crowds. In fact, my panic attacks began on airplanes. And then within a couple of years, I wrote my first book 
that required me to get on airplanes every week and teach about the healing and the rescue of, of God. And so this old place of panic now became a sanctuary in the sky. So I was still having to, bravery is moving scared. I was still having to go to crowded spaces and, and make decisions every day. Am I going to get on this elevator or am I going to take nine flights of stairs? Uh, and so I knew that I needed to have practices in place to help me take charge of emotional health. It's not, it's not that I didn't have faith that God was healing me and doing the work, but I also know that he makes our bodies and he knows what they need and he uses all means necessary to heal us. And so I started studying the science behind mental health and started to study the faith around mental health and realize those things actually complement each other very well. And so this book, Rhythms of Renewal, are the four rhythms I awakened to over the last, you know, eight or nine years of what it would need to be um, in rest, restore, connect, and create for my spiritual health, my physical health, my relational health, and my vocational health. And that God really wanted a holistic person as Rebecca, not one who was fragmented or, or just isolated in these specific areas. And it would take some diligence. It would take prudence to put these practices in place, much like a spiritual discipline of any sort. And as a result, when I am operating in all four of those rhythms on a regular basis, on a daily basis, weekly, monthly, annually, I'm at my best. I am the most healthy version of myself. And when one of those rhythms falls to the wayside or one escalates so high that the other three are ignored, like for me, the temptation might be create, might be in my vocational work. If, if work is running on all four cylinders, but I'm not resting, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not eating well, and I'm not connecting with my family or my friends, then I'm still crashing and burning. And so I think that was the breakthrough for me was to understand that these things must all be in place because God meets us in these rhythms. He's already there. He invites us to join him in those rhythms of rest, renewal, and restore and, and relationship, but it's up to us to determine if we're going to be proactive to get there. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. One of my recent guests was J.P. Moreland, and he went on such a similar journey to you where almost for him suddenly out of the blue, these panic attacks showed up, and he very quickly had to learn how to become an expert in a field he really had no expertise in. Mm. Is that accurate to you too, Rebecca? Did you have any training in, in any of these tools before you started to face no, this? No, the, the irony is I actually started a master's in psychology in college, but my undergrad was PR and I was offered my first salary position midway through that, you know, master's program, which I needed money. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had college <laughs> debt. So I, I went ahead and did not finish that, but I have always had an interest in it because my father actually struggled with uh, mental illness. When I was a freshman in college, he actually went in a psychiatric hospital for a week and I didn't have language for what he was going through. And I am first born type A, uh, very different personality. I'm much more like my mother, but I saw him struggle and feel, um, I watched him feel despair, this this sense of um, like not having any solutions for change. And so when I get to midlife, which was about the same age it started to hit him, 
New York was a pressure cooker for me that pushed it to the surface. So it was almost like when it happened or began for me, I looked back on my, you know, genetic line and thought, oh no, is this something that I'm going to now navigate for the next, you know, 50 years like my father did. And so, but because I had the resourcefulness of a firstborn, you know, like it was almost like a standoff mm. between yeah. helplessness and determination, <laughs> two sides of my brain going like that fight or flight was very strong in me. And that resolve ultimately um, is what allowed me to walk through it. I did not take medication in that season. I don't, I don't know why exactly, but be, I didn't like the feeling of being out of control or um, something, some spark being diminished. Um, but it definitely did make that season harder, but it also made me a lot more proactive on all the other ways to raise serotonin or the oxytocin or whatever those things that do can happen naturally. It just requires a lot of research and time. Yeah. And then Gabe, as I'm doing the math, uh, if this was nine years ago, that was right about the time you were building Q. Tell us what it was like for you. For You've been already married for a while by that time, and suddenly Rebecca and you are having to deal with this new thing. Yeah, it was really interesting timing because Rebecca was at a season, you know, in our life and as a family, we just moved to Manhattan. We were pursuing, I mean, with everything we had kind of calling, and it felt like an odd time to be going through something like that. And yet I think the learning that Rebecca is unpacking and what she has learned is how much that moment just revealed that in her own life, she, you know, hadn't really found her purpose or calling and where she was finding meaning. And so it started to reveal some of those things. But the beautiful thing about it is we, we really had the margin. Our children had just gone back into school. Our youngest had started kindergarten. There was just a little more margin in Rebecca's life where she was able to start to put some energy into like figuring this out. And I'm so proud of her because she just jumped fully into it in, in her walk with God and her seeing counselors and talking to uh, Pete Richardson, who I know is a mutual friend of ours, uh, who does life planning. And and out of that season, uh, I was in a place where it just, it, I had the margin to just help put more energy into her life and to her purpose. I'd realized for a decade she'd put so much energy into helping me launch Q, launch the thing that I had felt called to. She'd been so supportive, helpful, resourceful, but that was the thing I was working towards. And she had in some ways lost herself in that. And this was like this new opportunity where she was starting to rediscover who she was. And so for me as her husband, that was a really fun moment because it started to happen and it happened rather quickly where we started to put the pieces together and realize what her purpose and calling could be and start to walk towards that. And so as I look back now, I mean, I'm just so grateful we even went through that moment, that pivot, because it actually has helped her find like the deepest meaning and calling in her life uh, because of that. Oh, it's so beautiful to hear that. It's, it's uh, what I find fascinating is people on the early uh, journey with this kind of anxiety, they almost feel like they're drowning in it. It, it. it has them in its grip, right? But at some point, you end up being able to flip the power dynamic where you start to have some form of control over it. Mm -hmm. I would be curious to hear from either of you when you first noticed, like Rebecca, for you, when did that power dynamic begin to flip for you? Well, it definitely, there was a moment that God entered in and intervened at 
So it was September 20th of 2011, been over a year of walking through panic disorder. And one night in the middle of the night, I just cried out, rescue me. Like it was, I was in the middle of a panic attack, no longer confined to small spaces like claustrophobia, claustrophobia, which was the root of how it began for me. But now it was, you know, in my bed in the middle of the night or walking the streets or going to the playground. And when that, when it got to that point, like this chronic smothering, this chronic, like I have to escape, uh, that for whatever reason that night, I was just compelled. I just said, rescue me, deliver me. I cannot do this without you. And in that moment, my body just broke. It like was done. The panic stopped midway. And that was the first time I didn't have to exit the room for it to subside uh, or the trapped space, whatever that might feel like. And I was just flooded with peace. And I knew then, while I didn't have a name for it, I knew something was shifting. It was like a moment of surrender that we all don't want but desperately need. Hmm, And in that surrender, it just offered this rescue and and so with that, the next day, it was like almost the months that followed, the city became living color. I started to notice things because when you're sick, you only look inward. And so I was very self-absorbed with my deficiencies that last year. But when a healing journey begins, you look up and you look out and you begin to see everyone else. And I started, that pain became purpose quickly because I started to see women just like me in my city walking the streets, one in four, gripped in fear, struggling with anxiety and depression. And so I was like, oh, this isn't just me. So the lie is when you're sick, like you're you're worse than everyone else. And That's right. It actually sends you the message that you're you alone. Are. You're, you are alone and then you condemn yourself. You feel shame that you can't just get it together like everyone else. And then on the other side of that, all of a sudden I thought, oh my goodness, so many people feel the way I felt the last year. I need to actually meet with them. I need to, So I started having coffees. I started leading these small groups of women in the city because, again, in New York City, just so many people cover that and they mask it with work or whatever their, you know, comfort of choice might be. And that just propelled purpose really quickly and partly because I was a writer and didn't know it. <laughs> I was a, you know, a writer in my journal in the middle of the night to process my thoughts, but learning, I've read Viktor Frankl in that year and learned so much about how the premise of his work is that the root of anxiety is unfulfilled responsibility. This idea that you know you're made for something inerrantly by God, the Imago Dei of God in you is like you're made. And all your days are appointed and, and destined and planned before one of them began, even in the womb. And that he he calls us towards something and he knits us and his works are wonderful. But yet so many of us haven't tapped into that and then there feels pressure around it. But if you actually just go back to who you were as a kid and the things that made you come alive, I realized I was called Becca Book when I was you know, in elementary. I could not stop reading. I learned later that readers make writers. And at 32, my mom said, I always thought you'd write. And I thought that would have been super helpful when I was picking a major. <laughs> so sometimes I think some of us think we're late bloomers, but God's timing isn't is right on time. And I think he almost redeemed those lost years, um, even just in in this last decade, just this last decade of fullness of going, hey, you actually don't have authority to, you would not have had authority and wouldn't even known, you can write, but you don't have a story or you don't have something to say or to offer the world. And by having had walked through some things like this, all of a sudden there's more potency with the words because 
you're not speak you're not speculating you're actually speaking from uh, walking through and overcoming and then now what is what is sustained health look like yeah and gabe let's let's ask you a similar question like um obviously what rebecca is sharing is is things in the nature of panic disorders generalized anxiety but i think any leader that is starting something new that really, really matters is also facing quite a lot of anxiety. It just shows up very differently. How, how did it show up for you as you were building Q? Well, I think with what we've tried to build with Q, it was kind of a new space, a new thing that hadn't been done in the way that I had seen it. There wasn't just a perfect track to run on in creating this organization that you know was really designed to help people have space to think deeply about cultural issues, to learn, to also build that on the foundation of faith. Um, and and then how do you create an organization around that? I am entrepreneurial, but I also very much care about the mission. I mean, that that's what's driven all of this. And so I think in the early days, there were different types of stresses, but I was younger. I was pretty excited. I probably, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know. And therefore I was able to just run hard. I think as time's gone on, you know, what I've just had to learn is this journey with God and, and the role faith plays in it. I think for me, uh, I was discipled by a friend 20 years ago, specifically in the area of faith and what does faith look like and how do you walk by faith? And I think that's just been very real and tangible in my life is trying to, uh, there's so many anxieties that come up, so many things where I don't know the future. I'm not sure where the provision's coming from. All I know is God has faithfully done that year after year after year, and I'm able to now rely on that so that when the anxiety comes up, I sort of have a decision to make. Am I going to fill that up, you know, with more of my own worry, more of my own um, ability to to manage this myself and, and, and do it all on my own? Or am I going to kind of throw that on this history of knowing how God has worked in the past and to, to really trust him on that and trust the people he's bringing around me and try to see that in the circumstances? And of course, there's no past to doing the hard work. So there's a lot of work involved with, with trying to grow something and lead something and discern. But I think when it comes to anxiety, that's been the greatest thing I've, I've probably learned is just trying to, when it starts to rear its head, to have the place to put it. And that's given me a lot of freedom to walk through some difficult moments and, and not always feel the weight of it. Um, the way I, the way I know some do, and the way I know I probably could, um, and so it's Rebecca and I's journeys on this are a little bit different. I know what I, I don't know everything she has felt, and I've I've only been able to experience it through her stories and her explaining to me and me walking through it with her to to know how real it is for her. Um, and I've probably just had a few moments where I've I've stepped into that zone where I know, man, this would be debilitating if if I felt this all the time. Uh, and so I've just been, you know, thankful to not feel it all the time. Also recognizing that this is a very real thing in our world today. And, and uh, tomorrow I might feel it as debilitating as she has felt it because of how quickly this can come on. And so we're just trying to practice these rhythms that she described that actually will help us keep some of that at bay and keep us on point for who we're meant to be one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the work I do is I coach faith leaders in sources of anxiety because I think anxiety is actually a spiritual force that grabs us and it does lead us down a dark path. 
And one of the great sources of anxiety as an organizational leader is when you get stuck. You know, you keep trying things and you're not able to make forward progress. And uh, we have interns at our church, and that's one of the top lessons I teach them. I try to put them in situations where they're going to be stuck so they can learn how to get unstuck. Um, Gabe, I'm curious for you, you must have run into the challenge of getting stuck as you built Q. Does anything, does one specific story come to mind where you were stuck and how did you get unstuck? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been stuck a lot at, at many, I feel yeah. like every few months, you know, I feel stuck on a new problem, a new challenge we're trying to overcome. I think probably the, the most significant was, um, about five years ago, walking through the moment of, of where with Q, you know, we'd created a conference that was an annual event. You know, people were coming to that. It was a great experience, but feeling the burden that th- there was a need for this to move beyond just a conference, that a lot of people can't afford to come to a conference, can't travel, as well as just the mission called for this to get to them where they're at so that they could lead better where they're located in their context, knowing that every context is a little different. And so in that moment of, of being stuck, it just became a major challenge that we put before our team that I try to get a lot of input and collaboration on. That that tends to be where I go when I'm stuck is I'm looking for voices outside of me, smarter than me, people that I trust that over time I've seen they have proven to both have a great foundation to how they think about things, but also a solid understanding of our mission. And when I can get their input and I can listen to a council of, of wisdom from multiple voices God's always used that in my life to help me get clarity, to help me see more clearly something I'm feeling but I can't quite put into words. And so it's through that journey, really over the course of about a six-month period, that we came up with a whole new concept, a whole new idea of how to expand what we were doing with Q at a conference into local communities. We called it Q Commons, and it became a way that now over 400 different cities and leaders have actually hosted events in their own city, creating conversations around how can people of faith advance good and be smart about how our faith should show up in the world today and respond to brokenness and injustice. Um, And so that's been one example of that. And then I would say beyond that, this last year, we were kind of stuck again going, hey, once a year having an event just isn't enough for people to truly be implementing this into their life more regularly with their family, with their friends, in their workplace these conversations are becoming more and more critical. How do we help them? And out of that kind of being stuck, we developed this whole model and a platform called Q Media that now allows people on their laptop, phone, Apple TV to now have access to uh, uh, hundreds of our pieces of, of talks and conversations and topics that uh, will stir conversation and allow them to take the lead on it, whether it's hosting dinner in their home or sitting around on the couch with their family and having a serious conversation about issues that are really hard to talk about. And a lot of people in the church don't know where to talk about these things. Um, And so out of those stuck moments, and this is where you gain confidence, and you realize when you get stuck and you can take in a bunch of voices and you start to see success of, okay, getting stuck is really just an opportunity. I mean, it's a huge opportunity to rethink, to put everything back on the table, to not just hang on to sacred cows, to be open to creation and some new innovation and reinvention and that's a fun journey. And once you've done it a couple of times, you start to you start to actually look forward to getting stuck because you know it's going to probably lead to something really great and better than you had beforehand. 
interested to hear from each of you between a spinning mind, a racing heart, a tightening gut, and like clenched shoulders. Where would you say anxiety shows up first for you? Well, I would say it's one you didn't mention is I actually can't get a deep breath. I can't inhale and exhale fully. And it'll start to scare me a little bit. It's like a little bit of a smothering feeling. So, and I'll notice it when I look at iCal, (laughs) when I open my calendar or I look at my inbox and it's just overrun. It's usually has to, to do with not enough margin in general. And I feel trapped in that. And for me, it's, uh, it's when I take a deep breath, it's feeling a tightness in my chest. That's, that's when I would feel and know that I'm getting anxious. But at three yeah. in the morning, it can look like a racing mind. Let's be honest. <laughs> that as well. That's the sign of a racing mind is, is when you go to bed thinking about it and you wake up thinking about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And then you believe the lie that you can worry your way to peace is typically the racing you mind. You have all the solutions at 3 a.m., but you really don't. <laughs> you think you do. Yeah. You speculate. The other thing that's interesting, Rebecca, is you describe a a social or a time claustrophobia with your calendar. That's really that same feeling of claustrophobia, right? That you're feeling boxed in or trapped. Yes. Everything comes back to feeling trapped. For Rebecca. For me. For me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and, and I love my life, but there's this sense of kind of in the moment of excitement saying yes to all the things, because as you can imagine... Uh, off opportunities, wonderful opportunities present themselves and, and you're like, well, why would I not? This is amazing. And then you realize when, it, when something you were so excited about becomes drudgery, it's because you just didn't think ahead. But in the moment, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. I, I think another challenge is for a lot of faith leaders, oftentimes because we are others focused or we're driven by a, a vision, we're often the last to know when we're not well. Mm-hmm. How do each of you know when you're not well? And then how do each of you know when the other is not well? Well, I would say I know I'm not well usually by my children or Rebecca. You know, the people closest to me noticing overreaction or, um, you know, I, it, it can be a calendar thing, just not enough time where I've I've not played, like I've not taken the time to do the things I really love and enjoy. I like to play golf. I like to hunt. I like to work outdoors. So when I look back, you know, over the past two weeks and realize, well, I haven't done any of those things, those are all signs to me that, okay, you're getting a little out of whack. Well, full disclosure, I think not well for me is too many hours on Realtor.com, like trying to decide we need to move somewhere else that's going to fix all the things or slow us down. It's this idea of escape again. It's just Hmm. partly due to like wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) But uh, this um, almost romanticized vision of life being so perfect and peaceful and because I haven't figured that out here, maybe it's going to be there. And realizing, like, no, that's, I know in my heart that's absolutely not true. But sometimes escape to me means, like, locational escape. And and so I think that's how it manifests. I was like, why am I looking at houses in a city that I aren't even, don't even really care about? You know what I mean? It's just mm, this idea of yeah. other might fix something here instead of going internal and going, okay. Because anxiety... Stress is outside pressures coming in. Anxiety is internal 
pressure going out. And so my anxiety manifests because I'm internally creating a whole facade of what could be or should be, knowing full well that there's not a rational thought connected to it. And I know when Rebecca's going down that path, um, when she's cleaning out drawers, rearranging closets, she moves into like a very, she starts to purge and control like these little spaces that she can manage. And and I know when she gets into that mode, now sometimes it's just literally spring cleaning. It's a good thing. It's not like it's a, always a negative. (laughs) It's not that you're about to move. Oh no, I am. I'm prepping for a move that's not happening. (laughs) There's just just times when, you know, you just know, okay, you're, you're going to this because you don't want to face some of the other bigger. Well, and part of it's like, we're all, we're made to vocationally create on some level in some way. We're supposed to join God in the renewal of all things. And, and yes, that looks like something, a version inside our home and family. And for me, it also looks like a version outside of our home and family. And I was home nine months this year with our newest little girl that we adopted from China a year ago. And at one point, about eight months in, I was getting really particular with Gabe in a heated, elevated discussion about the silverware drawer and where the forks should go exactly and the bigger forks in a different little cubby, and to which Gabe's like, you need to go back to work. <laughs> or counseling. <laughs> One of the two. Who or cares? Both. <laughs> but she really cared that night. I did. It meant so much mm-hmm. to me. And Rebecca, how do you know when Gabe's not well? I... I think he stuffs uh, emotion when he's not well. So um, I'll watch his jaw kind of clench, but he's staying really steady externally. But he can't hide his like jaw clenching in the middle of a conversation that I know he's feeling. He's gotten, because he has, I think he's had to be forced to be steady in some ways on my behalf. And but that doesn't mean that there aren't things kind of raging below the surface. And and so the more he's able to articulate the stress or the tension he's feeling, then he has that outlet. But if he doesn't feel permission to or feels shut down or feels like he actually can't afford to because I'm not doing well, then then I know there's something below the surface that's that's not well. And I eat. That's good. That's my other yeah, That's you my, stuff, my obvious, literally. I literally <laughs> stuff my emotions by overeating or eating the wrong things. Yeah, which the older you get, man, That's you right. don't have the freedom no, you have. No way. I've, I've got teenage kids and I'm, I've never been jealous of my children, but now that they can eat whatever <laughs> they want, I find myself mad at my own kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the major sources of anxiety for a leader is criticism. And uh, I think what's interesting with the two of you is you're both public. You you both do public work, which is very vulnerable. You're putting yourselves out there. I, I think an area of criticism that isn't dealt with enough is secondhand criticism. Hmm. When you love somebody who's being attacked, the impact it has on you as much as it has on the person being attacked. Hmm. Have you guys been in that situation? I don't know. I don't know if it's just something we're not aware of. I don't know that either of us have had much like public criticism. We, I kind of, we try to, I think, avoid, I mean, surely there has been some on some level, but in general, we're not publicly antagonists that are trying to stir the pot in general. I think. Well, you're not as much as yeah, I probably. Let's, I'll speak for myself here, but, yeah, but in how general. About you, Gabe? I, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, 
I, I, this is all part of possibly my own emotional makeup that I can kind of move on quickly, you know, and, and th- these are things I have to work through, but the criticisms do at the moment, they've just bounced off and there hasn't been as much as you would think with the kind of work we're doing and the kind of topics and issues we're pushing into, but your secondary, the idea of the secondary, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get that because I have several peers and I'm, I'm ob- always reading, observing, watching, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of what's taking place kind of in the zeitgeist of these conversations. And so when good friends are being attacked or taken down or, you know, people don't quite get them, then, you know, you can kind of identify with that and go, well, that could be me. I wonder what I would do in that situation. So, uh, I, I do understand, you know, how that could create some anxiety that you don't even realize you're feeling by just understanding that, that person's a lot like you and, and it can create some worry or fear maybe that, that the same thing could happen to you. I think a one, mm. one measure of criticism, it's a different version of expressing it. It's less about a vocal criticism public. I mean, certainly there's been a couple of those. But in general, I would say over a span of, you know, a couple decades of work, I would say a criticism is more um, offered as a rejection, like a slow, subtle kind of, <laughs> someone walking mm-hmm. away or or kind of ending like maybe relationship or just seeing that maybe there was an alignment there maybe in worldview or uh, theological perspectives or whatever and then there's just kind of a, a departure um, and so I think God's bigger than all that and he can certainly uh, be a unifier and I think our hearts are goodwill towards that Yet you're not going to be able to speak for both parties on that. And while we might be like, hey, you know, we don't see things the same way. I still think you're an amazing person. Um, not not everyone that we interact with can do that either. Um, and so sometimes I think it's less criticism, but more um, just division maybe might be one of the ways of seeing it. Where have either of you, just either, either one of you can answer this, where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group? In our family. I think we, you know, raising two kids with special needs, whether it's our oldest, Cade, biological, he's 18, Down syndrome, and then our six-year-old, Joy, we just adopted, is also has Down syndrome, and she's, you know, been in orphanage up until a year ago. And so... And then we've got two kids in the middle of that who have had to kind of buffer some of the need there. And I see that the impact of that. So, you know, I think we as a family, honestly, have led a stressful life because of some of just these variables. And then to choose that again this time with adoption, knowing full well that we're like setting ourselves up for more stress, but also more joy. Like it all comes together. It's a, it's a bundled package, but I do see as a mother intuitively, uh, the effects of that on all of us. Sometimes there's a little more of a sigh happening or an exhale or just a fatigue. And that, that can circulate in our family if we ignore it or just kind of avoid it. But I do find when we voice it and we come together and we rally and we, and you know, at least the four of us that, you know, not cater joy. Uh, there's a strengthening that comes from that vulnerability, but sometimes we have to make sure that we're making time for it. 
Yeah, and specifically, as Rebecca mentioned, I mean, now with two children who are largely nonverbal, I mean, our little girl speaks Chinese, she's just learning English, but our oldest son doesn't really say a lot of words, so you're you're always reading body language. I think that in our family, that's where it shows up. So if there's high stress, if there's an argument, if there's tension around the dinner table, you actually can look to these two children and you can see it on their face. You can see Hmm. some of that just resting on them and them not knowing how to solve it, how to create peace, not quite sure what's happening. But it's actually been a huge accountability factor for us to see how you know, for Cade, his whole life, like, how is he doing? Is he acting out? Is he joyful? If he's not, what is it about the system of our family right now that's not working well, that needs to be corrected, needs to be fixed? What does he need? Um, and could we be creating an environment that's more toxic for him than he than he can handle and he can't voice it? And so that has been a conversation, I think, over many, many years for us of, of being aware of it, but it's been largely the gift of seeing it through the lens of, of, of a child that's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. That's really profound what you guys just said, the way that Cade is is the um, indicator of the emotional health of your relationships. Yeah. That's a remarkable statement. I've always thought he's the barometer of our home. Mm. And Joy now, <laughs> she's a little more expressive with it, but she too does that. And man, it's real hard to, to see that and not feel just, John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And and I don't think you can actually be in the grip of anxiety while being invaded by the love of God. So that leads me to this question. This is the last question. When in your life do each of you feel most fully loved? I think when I walked out of this season, it was it's remarkable how the first New York has kind of got two halves, our season there, four and a half years. The first two gripped in fear towards the end of the second year, flooded with peace. And then the last two years, we moved downtown to a small apartment um, in Tribeca on the Hudson River. So I got to see a a glimpse of the water between buildings. Um, But I would go out at sunset and, and sunrise because I needed water. I grew up in Florida on the Gulf and I just needed some sort of water and the sun and circadian rhythm in those winter months especially. And uh, the Holy Spirit got so loud for me in that season of like just belovedness, being a daughter and almost um, like a like a filling happened in those two years that really actually was preparing me for a ministry that I didn't even see or know. I wasn't even going into it with that motive. You know, sometimes we're like, I'm going to study the Bible so I can teach it. No, it was like, I was so hungry for the good news, the gospel as its redemptive work, rescuing me, what I had already witnessed, but then transforming me, sanctifying me, pruning and purifying my heart. And that was enough. And I think the love of God is most evident for me when, when it's enough. And there were so many times growing up in the church, I accepted Christ at five, but didn't quite know what I was being rescued from, other than I believe the story of Jesus was true and his message was true. I didn't know what I was being saved from, but 30 years later, all of a sudden, I was like, I've been rescued from a pit, like pulled from a pit in Psalm 18, but also I've I've now come to see that, that 
God's love in its purest form is enough for my heart to satisfy, to fully satisfy. So then what are the distractions that keep lying to me or taking me away from that place that I have to layer all these other things on top of that for it to be enough? And God just kept coming back to me. He goes, you matter to me. Is that not enough? You matter to me. Is that not enough? Because I would, I would layer rejection or whatever. Of approval of man kind of would compete with that. And I think it does for a lot of us in ministry. It's like we want God's full affection for us to satisfy us, but we there the competition always comes around the approval of man because it's a public ministry. And so I'm so glad that my ministry was rooted in those two years so that when the temptation comes now, um, you know, did, did it resonate or, is, you know, wherever I'm flying to to speak or whatever, I always come back to the center of like God's affection and desire and delight for me as a daughter is enough that we could stop tomorrow. This is not about that. This is just about he, um, just delighting in who I am. And I, and it, and I have to declare it. It's not, it's not natural. I don't think for a lot of us to stay there if we don't just confess it, declare it, accept it, confess the sin of unbelief. You know, for me, it's just a very, that's part of my rhythm. It's just examine and confess. It's it's part of my rest rhythm. There's a whole chapter on it. Just examine and confess, receive the love, don't condemn yourself and move forward. Yeah, that's really good. How about you, Gabe? Yeah, I mean, this is a question. I like you. I've I've struggled with this one. Is how how am I loved without action or doing? You know, like the love comes from my service towards mission. So I'm I'm in the middle of still sorting through all of those distinctives. Um, but I feel most loved. I think I feel most loved by God, and I feel that when I'm outdoors, when I'm in creation, when I'm waking up in the morning to a sunrise when I'm when I'm in the quiet alone place um, I feel that most I think in in human interaction with Rebecca with our kids you know I, I still tend to feel love through affirmation words of affirmation recognition those types of things I think kind of bring that on but I, I will say man that is a journey and process for me to continue to feel God's love as a son without doing anything. Um, that Finding that for me has been a journey these last few years um, where I've, I've grown up in such a way that it really do, do, does feel like it's responsibility to serve God. It's part of mission. It's part of what we're here to do. And trying to settle in to just, you know, getting rid of all that to know that I'm just his child and what he, you know, that he loves me without any doing any of that sort of thing. Um, has been a journey that I'm still on. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys. I, I appreciate the time you've given, but honestly, for quite a long time, I've just, I'm so glad you're in the kingdom. The work you guys are doing is so necessary and remarkable. So thank you guys so much for giving your time today. Thank you uh, for Great being us. with you. Thanks for the questions and for leading these conversations. I think we need more of them. Friends, by listening to this podcast, I know it means that you have a real interest in emotional health and maybe even a burgeoning interest in family systems theory. I'd like to invite you to a workshop I'm hosting March 10th and 11th right here in Colorado. You can get all kinds of information and tickets at my website, stevecusswords.com. If you buy tickets, use the coupon code PODCAST for $30 off a ticket. 
This is a two-day interactive seminar where you'll be uh, learning about concepts and then also having opportunities all through the two days to try them on and practice them for yourselves. This goes way beyond theory. You'll actually come away after the two days having already put some things into practice. And I know for many of you, you know, you're very busy and you love listening to podcasts, but to really dig deep into this kind of material takes some sacrifice. So I'm going to invite you to take two days off. Come and join us in Colorado. The way ticket sales are going right now, we anticipate selling out probably in the next six weeks or so. So there's still time in the next month to buy tickets. I've hosted workshops like this for Nancy Ortberg, for Marshall Shelley, uh, for several organizations and churches, not just nationally, but also internationally as well. I was recently over in London, England, hosting a workshop just like this. So join us March 10th and 11th. We'd love to see you as you invest in your own emotional health and soul health. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.